The church's one foundation, indeed, is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is also the foundation of our personal lives as well. Celebrating him with you today on our church's 146th birthday, my dear friends. Uh, you know, it's a dream of a lot of people to make a pilgrimage to see the country of Israel. In fact, the common usage of the term for describing where you're going is not even Israel, but people will say in a little bit of a hushed tone, we're going this summer, we're going to the Holy Land. And everybody knows what you mean. Now, there have been times in the last 70 years when that was not a good idea. Israel has been through four major all-out wars that literally threatened its very existence. And in the meantime, between wars, there have been uh, civil unrest and skirmishing and literally bloody fighting, uh, both internally within the country from the people who don't like their being there, uh, but also border skirmishes in the north with Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, uh, along their uh, frontier with Gaza to the southwest. Uh, there has been a, a thing called an intifada, an uprising, where there were suicide attacks and various kinds of sabotage, rockets being fired in from outside, uh, short-range rockets that would land indiscriminately and uh, blow up in the middle of Israel's cities. But boy, if you're going to if you, if you can scrape up the money and find the, the flights, uh, these are kind of good days to go. Israel is at peace with Egypt, more or less, which wasn't always true. At peace with Saudi Arabia, another one of its neighbors. At peace with Jordan to the east. The Palestinians who, who, with whom Israel has had a long, strained relationship are kind of cut in half. Uh, you know, one of the ways that you deal with uh, your enemies is divide and conquer. So the Palestinians in the West Bank, uh, north of Jerusalem, are governed by the PLO, but in Gaza they're governed by a breakoff group called Hamas. So they, they do not have the ability to work together there at cross-purposes also. Uh, Lebanon is a mess, and so Hezbollah is not in a good position to stage uh, large-scale attacks on Israel from the north, and Syria, Israel's tormentor to the northeast, has been, is, is in about year four or, or five of a massive civil war that has completely consumed the country's ability to survive, and they don't have any energy left over for assaulting Israel. So uh, these are kind of golden times for the Israelis, and it uh, if you can find a way to get there and have the money, uh, it's probably the most peaceful time in a while when you could visit. Now, obviously, where do, you, where do people go when they visit the Holy Land? Well, you go to Jerusalem, of course. There are other places you might go well, on your tour bus. You might go up to the Galilee and uh, see some of the biblical sites up there. Uh, you might go across into the desert to see Masada, the desert fortress, uh, built by King Herod, where the last of the diehard Jews held out for three years, even after Jerusalem fell. That's a pretty cool site. But the big one, of course, is Jerusalem. And where in Jerusalem do people want to go? They want to go see where the, the Jewish temple is, or was. There isn't any temple anymore. What you can see, if you go, are tiny traces of what used to be. 
King Solomon began a process in roughly 970 BC to encase the ridge, the historic center of gravity of Jerusalem, and to encase it in stone, to build up its edges and kind of terrace it up and make a flat platform on which his magnificent temple could be built. That temple was destroyed when the Babylonians came for about the fourth time and assaulted Jerusalem and leveled it. They burned the temple to the ground and threw down its stones. Seventy years later, when the the ragtag bands of Jews came back from captivity, they began the painstaking job of building a new temple, but it was much smaller, plainer, and humbler a building, nothing at all like what Solomon had put up. For one, they didn't have the money They were not even really a country. They were a little pocket as part of the Persian Empire. They were fighting for their very survival. The masons who built that second temple worked with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other because they were afraid of being attacked. And so unfortunately, people who were children when they were carried off into captivity, when they came on dedication day for this temple, the temple of Zerubbabel, in about 516, those with long memories began to weep and everybody sort of caught on. They knew that this was nothing like what had been lost. And even though it should have been a day of rejoicing, they wept on that day for how humble the new building was. Well, King Herod, about the time that Joseph and Mary, Jesus' parents, were born, about the time when they were babies, King Herod the Great had levered himself into a great position. He was a friend of the Romans, used his relationships with Rome and the Roman armies to install himself as king, king of all of what was called uh, Israel or uh, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee and the regions to the northwest on the way to Syria. And he really knew how to make a buck. He was a vigorous taxer, And he also collected duties from all the trade that flowed through that narrow neck of land. See, three interstate uh, highways converged in that little skinny neck of land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Great Arabian Desert. And his tax collectors were right there stopping all of the trucks, I mean the camels uh, and the wagons, to make sure that they all paid their levies as you went through his land. And, And so Herod's treasury got rich. And partly, I think, uh, to buy off the Jews who didn't like him because he was not fully Jewish himself, they viewed, uh, the Jews viewed the Herods kind of as interlopers. So he bought them off by rebuilding the temple. And Herod's rebuilding, which was not just a, a little bit here and a little bit there, it was a massive rebuilding in white marble really was a dazzlingly beautiful building and once again brought some glory to that space. So starting about 20 BC, including the days when Christ himself walked the earth, he greatly expanded the platform so that now it was many football fields in size, just an enormous open area of flat stone uh, for the gathering of worshipers, for prayer, for teaching, And there were marketplaces in there as well to provide the animals needed for sacrifice and to do the money changing 
because of all the foreign pilgrims coming from different lands. Now, if you would go to visit that today, you would see nothing at all because that was completely destroyed by the Jewish revolt in 67, about a generation after Jesus lived. And in fact, Jesus, in his last week of his public ministry, kind of sadly foretold what was going to be happening. And uh, I'm going to be tasting just two little verses with you this morning from Matthew 24. But you might enjoy reading the rest of Matthew 24. Uh, Three days before he died, on Tuesday of Holy Week, Jesus described what lay ahead for his disciples in the church, basically in three eras. What's going to be happening in a generation when you're going to revolt and the Romans are going to come? They utterly destroyed Jerusalem, broke down its walls, stole whatever was worth stealing, took into, or sent into exile anybody who they had not killed, and basically emptied out Jerusalem. They knew that this was the center of resistance, and they wanted to stamp it out to teach these pesky Jews a lesson. And the worst of all, was the innermost part of Jerusalem where the last diehards held out. 6,000 people crammed into the courtyards of the temple. And I'm not, it's, historians are unsure whether this was deliberately done by the assaulting General Titus or whether one of his soldiers got a little carried away and was disgusted by how ferociously the Jews were resisting. But they began to throw burning torches onto the roof of the temple and basically burned the temple down on 6,000 people who were incinerated to death, a horrible way to die. But they would not resist. Uh, They would not, excuse me, they would not lay down their arms. They continued to resist. For all that time, there has no longer been a temple in Jerusalem. And then things took an unfortunate turn from the standpoint of the Jews. To the southeast, Islam arose, and it is part of the beliefs of Muslims that Muhammad himself went to Jerusalem, and from the place where Abraham was going to, was ready to sacrifice Isaac, the place where Solomon, where David uh, bought some land for the temple, where Solomon built his temple, the platform was still there and the Muslims built a shrine to commemorate in their um, teachings an event that they believe happened in the life of Muhammad that he ascended into heaven from that place. And so they built a beautiful building around it called the Dome of the Rock. It is uh, next to uh, Mecca itself. It is the holiest place in all of Islam. If, If anybody ever caused any harm to that building sitting on the former temple site, World War III would break out and the entire Islamic world would rise up. So the Jews content themselves with showing up at the only thing that is left of Herod's temple rebuilding. The temple itself is all gone. There is nothing left of it, not a stone. But what is remaining that has been excavated are the foundation stones holding up that gigantic platform. And it's called the Western Wall. 
That's what Israelis call it, the Western Wall. Some Christians call it the Wailing Wall because for many years the only day in which Jews were allowed by the masters of Jerusalem to approach their former place of worship was, uh, was on an annual observance of weeping for the lost temples. It's called Tish Ba'av, and once a year they go there. And that made such an impact on the Christians who were watching the Jews weep at the wall that they renamed it, or they nicknamed it, the Wailing Wall. But that, view, that term is viewed as a little bit derogatory to Jews. So don't ever, when you're talking to your Jewish friends, don't ever talk about the Wailing Wall. Just refer to the Western Wall. And what it shows is the incredible engineering ability that Herod and his engineers had at that time because the stonework, 17 courses of that platform exist above ground level, uh, much more of it goes lower. Uh, you know, cities over time kind of get taller because uh, dirt and debris and stuff, they kind of just keep building on top of previous civilizations. And so the, the foundations of that wall go way, way down, but 17 courses still exist above ground. And the average size of many of those stones are eight feet long, and they weigh six to eight tons. And there is one mamma jamma there that is 44 feet long. Raise your hand if you think I'm making this up. Okay, a couple of kids did. <laughs> Ask your dad for his cell phone and fact check me right now if you want. 44 feet long, it is 11 feet high. I, I, am, I kid you not, and it weighs estimated 300 tons. How on earth did people without cranes and traction equipment drag stones that big from their quarries? Mind-boggling. And so the Jews were very, very, very proud of what Herod had done. Herod did this, as I said, to curry favor with the Jews because he wasn't really fully Jewish and he wanted them to like him and submit to his leadership. But he also did it to glorify his name, to make him a bigger man, and to make Israel once again have some kind of glory. And it was, one, it was really one of the wonders of the Near East. People came from all over to look at it and gawk at it. Christ himself was a frequent visitor there. He loved going there, not only on the festival days. As an observant Jew, he would have been there for the three pilgrim festivals of Passover, of Jewish Pentecost, Jewish Thanksgiving, and then the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. But he would also go there when he was in Judea. He would go there to teach because the temple was not like a church where that people would go into, as here in, in the U.S., we go into the building to worship. Only the priests could go into the holy temple of Jerusalem, but the, in a in a desert climate or near desert climate uh, that was Mediterranean in climate and had uh, warming uh, breezes coming off the sea and the desert to the east, it never got gets super cold there. And, and it meant that you could uh, do churchly functions outside most of the time. And, and, uh, and so Jesus would. His, the outdoor areas he found to be particularly good for teaching. There always was a crowd and people's minds were on their relationship with God. So 
on this anniversary day, as we're thinking about our places of worship and we're thinking about the church, uh, just a couple words of a conversation Jesus had with his disciples on, I'll call it Holy Tuesday, three days before he died. Jesus, uh, in Matthew 24, it says, Jesus left the temple and he was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Both, Matthew, uh, both uh, Mark and Luke also tell this story and they add a little extra information. What beautiful stones, they said. They were gawking also at the stonework, both the, the enormous big rectangular ones that supported the platform, but also the beautiful marble itself that the temple was made of, beautiful white marble. It was a vast complex, not only the holy place and most holy place, but clusters of storerooms, meeting rooms, places for the priests. It was a, an entire complex ringed by a colonnade, which is a rows and rows and rows of columns, hundreds of stone columns. It was a splendid place and all in Jerusalem were proud of it. And the disciples just looked around and said, ain't we something? Look at the beautiful stones here. And Jesus briefly said, do you see all these things? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As I mentioned to you before, that sad prophecy came true. Now, all right, suppose you're one of those disciples. Is it, is it okay to have beautiful and elaborate places of worship for God? Interesting question as we sit in the middle of our beautiful house of God, isn't it? Hmm. Was Jesus just having a bad day and was this kind of crabby? You know how sometimes when you're in a bad mood, of course you can't tell because people in bad moods think it's everybody else who's off the wall. All right, somebody close to you who's having a bad day. It's that we can see it with laser sharpness, can't we? <laughs> they don't maybe even know it, but everything tastes sour. You say something and then they'll say something negative. You say another thing and somebody will always see the worst. Is Jesus just having a bad day? Is he like maybe got his impending suffering and death so on the brain that he can't even enjoy a moment of worship at the temple, that beautiful, beautiful building? No, he was telling them something important. And it was not how stupid it is to invest in places of worship. Jesus loved being at the temple and went there often. Jesus also welcomed worship, even extravagance in worship. You all know the story of a woman who maybe wasn't that well-to-do, but had decided to invest in or maybe was given a small jar of extremely expensive perfume that only the richest of rich women could afford. What she was doing with it is anybody's guess. Maybe uh, this woman had a kind of sad reputation, so maybe it was a gift from a wealthy boyfriend, let's say, and she decided to dump it all on Jesus' feet. And he didn't say, lady, don't do that. Go sell that, you need the dough. No, he let her do it because he welcomed even extravagance in worship. He was going to give 
the ultimate, his last measure on behalf of people that he loved. And God loves to be worshipped. And if people want to be extravagant in their worship, God welcomes it with open arms. No, it wasn't the fact that a lot of money had been spent on this building. God is worthy of all that and more, our highest and our best. And I hope as you look around you and realize that some people long ago sacrificed ferociously to be able to raise up a building such as this. It would cost millions and millions to replace the sanctuary we get to worship in. I never get tired of looking at it, and I hope you don't either. It's a delightful place to be. And in and of itself, God is worthy of all this and more. And so it is important that we really work hard at maintaining it, at keeping it clean, at keeping it in good repair, and in creating a place that works and functions as a place where we can do our ministries. However, there is an important thing to remember of what Jesus said, and that is to remember that the church is not a building. The church is people, and people are more important than buildings. And that's good for our leadership to remember as well in the ways in which we invest, that we not become slaves of fussing over a building and and make that the driver of what we do as a church. People ministries come first. And I think that was Jesus' point because ultimately everything tangible in the world is going to be destroyed. Only people have immortality. The only thing you can take with you when you rise from your grave, the only thing you can take along are other people. Everything else that in your life right now has been destroyed. And, you know, without being a... I know this sounds like buzzkill, and it sounds like buzzkill if I say it to you. Someday this building is going to be destroyed. And you think, oh, you got to talk gloomy like that on our church anniversary Sunday. Come on, Pastor Mark, lighten up a little bit. Don't be so such a sourpuss on a happy day. This is our church birthday. For Pete's sake, lighten up, will you? We need to keep that in mind. Because what's really St. Marcus is not our incredible stained glass windows or this beautiful carving in yellow poplar that you see in front of you or our statuary of Jesus or uh, any of our musical instruments or any of the cool things that we have come to enjoy when we gather for worship. The thing that matters is the people. Here's what Jesus said. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down, just so. His word came true in a sadly short amount of time, about 35 years later. And I'd like to just jump down his long discourse. I invite you to read all of Matthew 24 uh, when you have a chance. But Jesus also said at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That's what matters.
That's why we're here. Because the gospel of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ are what are going to enable us to survive the coming destruction. Now, it may be that this building simply decays and it is no longer going to be financially feasible to save it. It happens. Some buildings get neglected long enough and they become fiscally unsavable. Maybe there will be wars in Milwaukee and we will be shelled. Don't ever say never. Plenty of places in Europe that thought they were secure ended up undergoing terrible destruction. Maybe there will be a fire. Don't say it couldn't happen. Historic Trinity Lutheran Church a couple of years ago caught fire. Its entire roof went up. It's going to take north of $20 million to rebuild that building. It was touch and go whether they would actually rebuild their place. Buildings perish. The stuff you own will perish. But what is immortal is your soul. Even your body, though it appears to be slowly falling apart like mine, is going to be rebuilt when the Lord returns. And Jesus said on this Holy Tuesday, the Son of Man is going to come back. Be ready for that day. Many will mourn. Imagine that. They're going to be fearful and grieving at Christ's return. You and I can rejoice because having been led to see the corrupt nature of our souls, recognize our sin for what it is, lay it down at the cross of Christ and receive his mercy and forgiveness through the shedding of his blood, which was going to happen in his life just three days from when he said these things. That is what is going to happen, that the angels will gather us up. Half of God's angel army are going to be arresting officers and court officers who bundle off uh, the unbelievers for condemnation in God's court. You and I will be gathered to hear in person the not guilty verdict. Welcome to the joy of your Lord. And everything you think you're going to miss so terribly of the tangible stuff around you is going to be replaced in your life so dazzlingly you are going to say over and over with me, totally worth it. This is so cool. I'm so glad to be here. You can trust your hopes that if, let's say, this beautiful sanctuary is taken away from us and we will be worshiping God in a different way in heaven, the new uh, places of worship are going to be dazzlingly better. In the meantime, let us thank God for the places he has given us to shelter us from the elements, receive his worship, and let us just make sure that as we're allocating our energy and resources, that it's always people first, for our mission here is not our personal comfort of the members. This is not a country club that's all about pampering members. We are here as a human rescue operation. Second, let's remember that our greatest treasures are invisible. You can't see them. The words of God travel from one human being to another. We share them and spread them. And the power of the gospel to transform our hearts and to build the faith that we need is invisible, not visible. But that's our greatest treasure. You cannot see the body and blood of Christ being given to you when you receive the sacrament. You can see 
a munch of a wafer, or these days we have little hard pellets. Uh, sorry about that. It's the best we could do soon, soon. Just let's talk to the boss and get this COVID thing over and we can get our hosts back. A little sip of wine is all you can see, but Christ himself comes to live with you. That's invisible, but they are our greatest treasures. And the love that we have for our God, he for us, and the love we have for each other. Uh, you just sang about it a half an hour ago, that, that mystic and blessed communion, God and us and we with each other, the love we have for each other is invisible. You can only see some of its outward manifestations. That is our great treasure as well. Finally, one last little thing. Just remember that all these treasures, including the beauty of our own sanctuary, are all gifts of God. We clap and cheer for the individuals who made them happen, but ultimately behind them all is a wonderful giver who has given us all of the great things that make us love our congregation. A wonderful place to be, but wonderful people to be in ministry with, to, to celebrate our joys with, to cry with uh, in times of loss and hurt, to visit us and pray with us, to help us when we're old, to help the struggling parents when they're young, to manage caring for their little flock of young'uns, to clap and cheer for each other in our times of triumph, to hug each other in, when we've taken some shots, to share the word with one another, to pray for one another, and joyfully to anticipate this is only the beginning. The good vibes, the worshiping, and the singing is never going to end. These all are gifts from God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us our wonderful congregation. It's all about the people. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.